This is the Ritz and Hewers podcast. On tonight's show, we're going to be joined by Lee Howard. Lee's a barrister practising in industrial law, in regulation and public law. And he'll join us to explain the laws that regulate how much you and I get paid. In particular, though, about the minimum wage and about penalty rates. How topical is that? Because they're generating a lot of discussion in politics and media. But who actually gets the minimum wage and who actually gets penalty rates? And what can you do if you're paid less than the minimum wage? Do these laws actually stifle business at the other end of that spectrum? And first up in Softbox, we're looking at emotions. Emotions get a bad rap, don't they? Sadness becomes severe, it's depression. Anxiety is often seen as crippling. Jealousy is seen as, what is it? A curse, of course. But is it actually all bad? Is there an upside to negative emotions? So we're taking a closer look at that tonight. And joining me as per usual, well, she is now, Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller. Hi, Katie. Hi, Lindy. It's nice to see you. Lovely to see you. Sitting next to you is the Director of Psychosocial Oncology at the Peter Mac Cancer Centre in Steve Allen. Steve. G'day. You're actually wearing really nice. Well, we talk about your clothes because you often come in very casually, but you're so neat, you, like a pin. There's a formula. Which is? If it's a legal guest, I feel that I've got to dress up and look neat and tidy. So even though a half an hour ago I was in shorts and a T-shirt, I put on the work clothes I had on at work to come in out of respect for our legal guest. Whereas doctors know that I'm a rat bag and I'm scruffy and they don't expect me to be dressed up. So you've just given away your whole it's thing the formula. Now, your whole yeah. shtick. So the next time a legal person comes in, they'll go, I know why you're wearing that outfit. Yeah. But you're even wearing a vest. Like, it's just so... I know. I look so fancy. It's just such a shame that radio is not a visual medium. (laughs) Yeah, I should take a picture. Well, we will take a picture and point that out later. And people will be able to look at your vest and they will go, behold. (laughs) Um, Nice to see you, Katie. I'm just glad that I didn't talk about your outfit. I mean, because women, we kind of go, don't talk about our clothes, but we feel comfortable talking about men's clothes. Well, see, it's funny, actually. I actually feel quite comfortable. I feel more comfortable talking about women's clothes. Do you? Because, well, yeah, like when somebody – so I'm I'm generally not as – Dapper a dresser. Oh, no, you always look lovely. Um, so when oh, I see do. somebody who puts something together really well, I, I just can't help myself. I say, wow, that looks that looks really lovely, you know, lovely dress, lovely, you know, top. And, you know, I've, I've certainly received feedback that, you know, people sort of go, oh, that's, that's really nice. Like they, that. get, they get a positive emotion out of it. Yeah. Po- well, such a segue. Hey, no, I've got an even better sub-segue. Can I do a sub-segue? Sure. Because you know who really brought this issue to the fore, of course, was Julia Gillard. And, you know, when... She came into power and there was so much back chat and criticism of the way she dressed, which really highlighted the gender differences and the sexist undertones of, of that particular issue. And the reason I say it's a sub-segue is she was announced today as the new CEO of Beyond Blue, replacing Jeff Kennett, yeah. who retires in April. Um, you which actually I, tweeted out was such a good appointment. I just thought it was a fantastic yeah. appointment. Not only someone of such prominence, someone who's got a background of being interested in the area. Her dad was a psych nurse and um, someone who's you know really got a lot of knowledge about the area. I, I, I mean, Jeff Kennett obviously did an amazing job. Yeah. But I just think it's such a good appointment. I was really happy. Yeah, I was happy too. I thought it was marvellous. Just and, and such a hard act to follow. As you said, Jeff Kennett's done an extraordinary job, not just bringing the organisation of Beyond Blue into the public eye, but to talk about mm. the whole idea of depression and the whole idea of mental health. Yep. He's just been an extraordinary advocate for those conversations. And, and I'm sure that she'll pick that up and, and run with it beautifully. Just going back to the whole clothing thing, because you work in 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 – a profession where sexism has been known to, you know, run about at times. How, do, what's the story now when it comes to 
you know, people talking about what you're wearing, what you're not wearing, how you're behaving. I mean, how how's been how's your experience been in all of that? Uh, my observation is that uh, men generally will not comment on women's clothes in the workplace, uh, and I think that is probably because we have had examples where people have said things and it hasn't come from um, it hasn't come from a positive intention and it probably hasn't been received in that way um, I certainly you know get comments from other women and I give comments to other women um, occasionally I'll, I'll give comments to men uh, but yeah it's, it's really funny like I think there is still an expectation about how you will dress and, and there is still this expectation that as a lawyer you need to dress in a sort of appropriate way. Mm. Um, we know that means a suit for men, but when it comes to, to women, it's really quite vague. And I think that where it becomes a bit of a problem, and I have definitely seen this, is with junior lawyers. And somebody somebody can be, you know, I have seen junior lawyers be brought, you know, sort of be brought to task about what they're wearing. Um, and sometimes I wonder whether those comments are not so much about what they're wearing, but really a sort of implicit assessment, you know, about what somebody thinks about this junior lawyer. And it can actually be quite confronting and a little bit unfair. What, so. to, to actually use their clothes as a way of saying, we think in general you behave unprofessionally or something? Exactly. Yeah. To sort of say, you know, you need to dress more professionally. You need to, you know, conduct yourself more professionally. And it's and it's terribly unfair because it's just so vague. I mean, Is that what allowed? Exactly? Uh, look, I think that uh, they're certainly unhelpful comments. I, I don't know. I mean, look, you know, I'm not the employment lawyer. We could probably ask yeah, Lee. Yeah, let's, um, let's do that. Yes, please, they're going, please don't ask me that question. Well, I can tell you, <laughs> well, I can tell you we have dress um, codes in the hospitals. So the hospitals, like, we had to but make That's for rules. everybody. Well, around about, yeah, for everybody. But we had to make some rules around about 15 years ago at one of the hospitals as I was working at, not Peter Mac, obviously, I'm new there. But, um, you know, about just basic standards. And it was particularly around things like midriffs showing and stuff like that at the time, which were very popular. And um, it was just seen as not professional enough for the, even though we're quite flexible in hospitals because we, you know, we like to make our patients feel relaxed. So we'll often not wear ties and stuff. Mm -hmm. But people are still uncomfortable. I had an experience just this morning in the lift. I'd come out of a senior meeting and I was standing next to one of the very senior doctors who's a professor who's been on this radio show. And he's always immaculately dressed. Oh, you know, one of these people who, beautiful suits, beautiful shirts, great tie. And I, and there was about 10 of us getting into the lift. It was a senior meeting. We're all going down in the lift. And I commented, I said, as usual, the best dressed male in the room. And I specifically said male. And you could see everyone take a little bit of a breath thinking, oh, did Steve just say something sexist? Of course. And you could see them thinking it through. And someone said, why male? And I said, well, because on average, the um, women in, in the organisation are way better dressed. Most of the guys dress like me, just a shirt and any old trousers, and um, except this particular professor. And you could see everyone sort of think it through and struggle a little bit, you know, because there's nervousness around. You know, I think people think it through a little bit more ca carefully than we did in the old days. Which I actually think is really positive. It shows that people are being mindful about these things and they are actually thinking before they sort of, they leap. So I actually think it's a very positive thing. I do too. You know, a lot of people go on and say, eh, it's political correctness. I, don't, I think there's a difference between being politically correct and being mindful of, of these issues. And, you know, sort of, you know, yes, it's political correctness, but it's good political correctness. It's not political correctness. It's, you know, using language to make people feel inferior. That's crappy political correctness. And so I'm, I'm with you, mindfulness, you know, and they were thinking it through, but, you know, I think I'm sure when they thought about it, clearly this professor was the best dressed. <laughs> Beautiful tie. I I oh, man, I want to see a picture of I'm going to take a photo and bring it in next time. Would you please do that? I'll have to do it Maybe secretly. That's, he's, that's he's, very modest. he's very modest. So, but you're a <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Tom in Turek says, I work in the head office of a men's fashion brand. Male outfits always get comments and the women's aren't commented on nearly as much. Well, it makes sense in that environment, does it not? Well, it almost becomes part of your um, of sort of knowledge of what, what's happening out in yep. your profession. I think there's fearfulness, though. You know, I think people are anxious ever since the um, furor around the Julia Gillard comments. I think people are anxious. I know, I, you know, I would be careful. I would be much more careful. I didn't hesitate to comment on this male professor's clothes because I know it'll be taken okay. Whereas if I had a commented on one of the women's clothes, it could be considered that I was diminishing them to an outfit rather than a person. Yes. It's t- it's difficult. Yeah. It's di- and for me, there are even some women that I would not make that comment to. I, you know, I would... I would think that that was inappropriate. I mean, the gatekeeper and I will often talk about that's a that's a good shirt. That's good. Mm. That, that works really well with that those pants, you know, because we're friends and we see each yeah. other all the time, and we kind of know each other's look, and we're both interested in clothes. So mm. you know, there's but, a whole lot of boxes being ticked. But there. I can sum this topic up by saying it's quite appropriate to say I look immaculate and gorgeous because, quite frankly, I do. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a statement of fact. And just at this moment, we need to move to the actual topic <laughs> we wanted to talk about tonight, which is emotions. This is Ritz and Cures with Katie Miller, Steve Ellen and myself, Lindy Burns. Emotions, often seen in a negative light, the whole idea, Steve, is to just, it would be so much better if we just didn't have them, particularly those negative ones, particularly things like anxiety, anger, sadness, grief. Uh, But they have a role to play, yeah? Yeah, you know, the reason um, Katie and I picked this topic is because, you know, emotions, the discourse at the moment too is is that we, we understand them so little that the discourse is that they're bad often and that you shouldn't suffer anxiety and depression is bad and depression is an illness and, you know, and when it gets to severe forms, it has many of the characteristics of an illness and, you know, it's very disabling. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, normal sadness, normal anxiety. And the other thing that triggered it was one of my friends rang up saying, you know, that some, saying, so I'm just going through a really bad parenting moment and, you know, I'm just so anxious about some of the stuff I'm doing at the moment. And it was also negative. But to me, it's like, no, 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 these are flags that you're thinking about stuff and that something's happening that you need to rethink and reshape. And so we were thinking, you know, what are the upsides of emotions? So, of course, I jumped on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't dig into your own brain. You know what? uh, We were talking about this before too. It's quite embarrassing. You know, after I've been doing psychiatry now almost 30 years, in a couple of years it's 30 years, 28 years currently, and uh, I still can't define an emotion. I still can't. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you, you know, I deal with it every day of the week, nearly every hour, something comes up where I deal with emotions. And I can't really exp- – and when I had to write it down, I couldn't explain it. Mind you, I jumped on Wikipedia and I could see that, you know, it had the list of theorists around emotions and it went for about 10 pages. <laughs> and still we don't know. Going right back to Hippocrates and before, people still don't understand. No one can quite agree on what they are, why we have them, what the point of them is. Are they good or they're bad? It's bizarre. That's really weird. Yeah. So we're going to come back to what your Google search found out in a moment. But in the law, you, I mean, you, you would come up against – Almost as many emotions as Steve would in his psych world, yeah? Uh, I would probably come up against emotions, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily have the language for them. So I discovered something about myself about 18 months ago when I did a mediation course. And of course, mediation, um, I think, is one area of the law which is quite um, welcoming of emotions and understanding that you can't reach a rational 
agreement until you have dealt with the emotional side of a dispute. Uh, and so part of this, you know, mediation course was that we had to do these role plays and, you know, you would get coached through it as you were doing the role play. And, you know, I was doing a, a role play for a family law mediation and a moment happened and the coach sort of paused it and said, well, isn't, isn't that lovely? Isn't it wonderful what's just happened here between these two parties? And I said, oh, okay, yeah, I guess. And he said, you know, can, can you name that emotion? Maybe just name it for the parties. And I stared at him for what felt like an eternity thinking, I can't, I can't name that emotion. I, I know I can name white hot rage. I can name, you know, joy. But I, I literally could not name what that emotion was. What did it turn out to be? There was no one in the room who could name it? Or did uh, somebody come up with something? I think somebody came up with something, but, you know, I sort of... It didn't feel adequate. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I sort of always just sort of default in mediation to, oh, they're frustrated. And yeah. I think I found myself just using the same sort of three or four names over and over. So maybe well, there are Steve's things. got some suggestions here for you. There's a couple of things. One, there is a word for people who can't name emotions. It's called alexithymia, and it's a, and it's a Greek word meaning no words for feelings. So some people, whilst they feel the emotion fully, they just can't put the word That's on it. That's fascinating. Um, and but people argue about what the how many like primary colours. People argue about how many primary emotions there are. And the basic theory says is about six: happy, excited tender, scared, angry, sad, and there's various theorists who have named them slightly differently. But you could, you know, like Charles Darwin, he talked about many, you know, here's some of the ones I saw on his list. Um, suffering, despair, love, obviously, surely love comes into it, reflection, determination, guilt, pride, surprise, horror, shame. You know, so, and there's some lists that go to, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names to describe. Um but see, this is where I'm going to turn it into a definition debate. I mean, you know, you've talked about things like guilt and reflection. I mean, are they really emotions or are they sort of, you know, states of being? And, and you know, reflection, reflection is an act of the mind. Is that really an emotion? Well, another really interesting point, because people argue what constitutes an emotion. Some people say it's purely the feeling and all those other things like the what you're saying, the mind, the thinking element, the cognitive element isn't in it. Other people say it is. And so the ingredients are the thoughts, the bodily symptoms, obviously, when you're anxious, you sweat, your heart rate goes up, your behaviours, like, for example, you behave differently when you're in love than when you're scared, your um, expression, obviously, all this stuff goes on your face. You can, in fact, psychiatrists can often pick emotions better through a glass window than in the room because they get confused by the language in the room. Whereas looking just through a window, you can see the look on someone's face and you get an idea. And then plus the um, feeling. So there's those, you know, parts of the human experience that make up this emotion. And people argue over which bits are the emotion and which bits are secondary downstream effects. And so, I mean, does it matter? I mean, why do we even need to be able to, you know, outside passing my mediation course, you know, <laughs> why do we need to name emotions? Why do we need to have a definition of them? Is it to, okay, I'm jumping in here yeah, because I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I thought it was about time that I said something. Is it so that we can better understand them, the nuances of them? And sometimes because the whole idea of our emotions controlling our behaviour is something that in a civilised society is not necessarily ideal. Is that true? I'm looking at both of you. You both got blank faces. No, I think it is. I think we try and name them for a whole lot of reasons. One, because it's just so 
endlessly fascinating trying to understand human behavior. Um, and so that's why I love it. But also, um, we want to try and name them. In a sense, we name and shame emotions. By naming them, we recognize them. And, and the idea is, in a sense, we can strip away the emotions to leave our thinking to sort the problem out in a logical, yes. sensible way. Now, other people would say, that's just stupid, you moron. Um, I get told that all the time. Um, because, of course, a lot of people would say, no, act on your gut, not on your brain. Your gut's going to lead you more carefully. Like, for example, should you think through is this the right relationship or should you just decide, am I in love or not? And so it depends on which side of the coin you go on in that particular debate. But sometimes, though, it is about – because I was looking at some of the notes that you put together, particularly around the area of jealousy, for example, mm. that, you know, often seen as in- incredibly negative, you know, controlling behaviour yeah. in relationships. It can be a trigger for domestic violence. There's just so many awful aspects to it. But there's all different sorts of jealousies, isn't it? There's, there is the relationship jealousy, the whole idea of this person mm. is mine and they cannot be even friends with anybody else there's the career jealousy you know that somebody's mm. getting getting rewarded or getting awarded for something that you can adequate just do just as well or you know but you just didn't put your hand up um, so there's all sorts of different things that I think that if we can actually acknowledge that such a thing as jealousy exists and this is what it feels like and this is what it can lead to mm. we can we can take you know the we call them in in the yoga world the four breaths you can take you can take the four breaths Mm-hmm. If you can name it and you can say, okay, this is my emotion or this is what it is, this is jealousy and I'm feeling this because blah, 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 and then you can take a moment to actually – so am I, going to, am I going to go with this gut feeling? Am I going to go with this feeling? Or am I going to say, no, this is just coming about because of X, Y and Z and the repercussions would be outstrip the action. You know, it's, it's not necessary. Mm. So it actually gives you pause, mm. gives you a chance to pause and not just – immediately react, which would be a very Neanderthal kind of thing to do. Yeah, so jealousy could result in horrible behaviours like domestic violence or it could result in good behaviours like thinking about your relationship, um, doing more to keep your relationship healthy, to um, show the one that you're jealous of that you love them so that they – so it can go either way. Similarly, there's similar stuff around depression and around – anxiety is a classic. We know there's this famous curve. I love this curve. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve and it's a mathematical representation that as you get more anxious, you perform better. You play your instrument better. You memorise things better. You concentrate concentrate more, you are more likely to perform well in your work task, but you get to a certain point and the anxiety gets too high and then your performance drops off. And once your anxiety gets too high, everything falls in a heap. And so the idea is, you know, I love it, the Yerkes-Dodson curve. Look it up, people. Um, it's uh, I always get confused on the, between the Yerkes-Dodson and the Henderson-Hasselbeck curves. Um, the scientists out there will love it. Um, <laughs> like the such geeks, a geek then. But, um, and so, you, you know, so the idea is you stay on the right part of this curve so that, you know, like performance will say anxiety is good going on stage, but of course you don't want too much. And similarly, depression. Mm. There's all this research that says, um, you know, depressed people, they do all these horrible things that feel terrible, like ruminating, but actually rumination often leads to um, creative thinking and thinking of different ways to solve a problem. It's walking that line, isn't it? I've just Mm. got a a quick text that I want you to answer before we move on. Can our minds control our emotions? If, for example, we decide, okay, we're not going to think about something that's made us upset or put us into a particularly emotional uh, emotional state, can that actually make it go away or does it stay regardless of what our minds are trying to get them to do? Yeah, I think it can. So the idea is through insight, through recognising your emotions, you can behave in a, in a way that you um, want to behave in better. I know I personally have got better at that. I used to lose my temper in meetings in certain situations. Um, 
and uh, I'd get angry and I'd become dysfunctional. And over the years, I've gradually learned to recognise it at the early phases and pull myself back and try and... And I have little tactics in my head now when that's happening where I try and, okay, just stand back, look at it from above. Okay, I'm clearly you know, losing it here. Let's start to listen to the other person's point of view. Clearly, I'm not hearing their point of view. And so, so you can get better through practice and maturity. I've still got a long way to go, obviously, but we all still do. I'm on the path. We all do. I'm on the path. Uh, this is Ritz and Cures with Katie Miller and Steve Ellen. This is Ritz and Cures on your Tuesday night. Loving the fact that you're hanging around and being a part of it. You can text 0437-774-774. Our special guest tonight is Barrister Lee Howard. We're talking about the laws that regulate how much we get paid, and in particular the minimum wage and penalty rates. And Lee is a barrister who specialises in industrial and public law. He shot to fame in legal and Twitter circles in 2011 when Qantas grounded its planes, you'll remember, during an industrial dispute, and the Fair Work Commission was asked to urgently decide whether Qantas could, you know, in fact do that. And Lee cancelled his Saturday night plan so he could report via Twitter, and he gained a solid Twitter following as a result. He's been named a rising star in the areas of employment and safety in Doyle's Guide to the Australian Legal Profession, and I'm just disappointed that that wasn't me. Uh, Lee, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Grab that microphone, sir, and come on over. Welcome Thanks, to everybody. Show. So, you, were you just saying off air before that you're no longer on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. So after after what anymore. I've just said. You can unfollow me. Um, <laughs> I find it a, a stressful place, a distracting place. A distracting um, place. And I was just saying before that I've returned to the print media. I think it's a bit more uh, reliable. I like my news distilled into a format, but there is a time and place on Twitter. Yeah, especially the you know the the current events that are unfolding at the time. It's a wonderful place to go. But um, I was just saying to Katie before, I'll come back and uh, I'll start tweeting again when nobody else is. Because you know, it is it is a it's a medium that is struggling at the moment. Is it? Yeah, okay. in terms of the numbers of people, Facebook is gangbusters. But in terms of – and people sort of talk about Twitter being, you know, the place where the media follows the media, yeah, which is pretty much And politicians become, follow politicians. Yeah. Media and politicians. That's it, which mm. is a bit sad. Uh, just going back before we talk about uh, your stuff tonight, Lee, uh, just going back to the emotions thing, Kate in Burwood has said there's a great app named Emotionary and it's a fab dictionary of – Emotions. It's developed here in Melbourne. Steve, you should check it out. I'm going to check it out. I'll, I'll soapbox that in the coming week. Emotion and pretend that it was you that yeah. discovered it. Yeah, dear. Don't listen again, please. You'll get jealous. Kate's going, hang on a second. Didn't I give him that? <laughs> Lee, you specialise in industrial law, in regulation, public law, etc. So what, what does that actually all mean? Industrial law is, as I said, um, and what I predominantly do is disputes between employers and trade unions, so collective industrial disputes. Then there's individual-based disputes between employers and employees, and I obviously do a lot of that. Uh, regulatory law um, is uh, law about our regulators, uh, the the bodies out there that enforce our uh, laws. So, for example, the ATO, WorkSafe, ACCC, the Fair Work Ombudsman, the ABCC, these are all regulators, so I act for and against regulators very often. And then public law, as Katie knows, it's a bit of a grab bag concept it would be, you could describe as the the law relating to the accountability and control of government. And I think public lawyers need specialised skills uh, and they need to know how government works in order to um, 
act for and against governments, and so that's a, a large part of my practice as well. Which one of those is the most challenging? Oh, they're all they're all challenging. Yeah, they sound horrific. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible to me to say that, but it, it, I, not horrific as in oh, why would anybody want to do that? But just in terms of the challenges associated with it, because so it sounds complicated, but it also sounds fraught in in terms of the decisions that you that that you are influential in bringing down mm-hmm. or making that that it it it's incredibly public and people have very strong views about them yeah i think overall i think industrial law is probably the most complex not legally it is very technical as we'll discover tonight mm-hmm. but um it's the other things that surround industrial law that make it more complex than, say, acting for a government who, or, or in relation to a, a public law matter where um, there's process in place and you just follow and, it. Um, and follow follow the process. Yeah. The yeah. process is very com- complex, but industrial law is not always about com- you know process. It yeah. can be about all sorts of things. Can Sarah, it be about sorry. emotions? Sorry. Hey, you got me to yeah, beat me to it, Lindy. <laughs> sorry, Katie. Why, you know, one of the sorry. things that's fascinating me about speaking to lawyers on this show over the years is that, you know, it seems to me that there's humans and then there's a whole lot of laws written on paper and then the lawyers are the people who dance in between the two, you know, trying to, you know, and it's it always strikes me it's a lot like medicine. It, you know, you would think as a law, you know, as a non-lawyer, you would think it's a whole lot of rules and they just follow them, look it up and follow them. And it's nothing like that at all. It's the intersection of humans and books. Can it be about emotion? It definitely. Yeah. Industrial relations for sure. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, Katie. I just jumped all over you and you had it there. <laughs> just sitting there. Fruit was ripe and you were picking it and the host was rude. Oh, look, great minds, great minds. Great minds, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about two of the things that we were going to particularly bring up today because they are so topical. So what is the minimum wage? Not as in how much is it, mm. but what is it in place to provide? Um, the minimum wage is a concept that needs unpacking. So there is a minimum wage. There is a concept of a minimum wage. Uh, all employees are entitled to it. It's $17.70 an hour. But um, that's that concept is off, it's, it's almost irrelevant um, in most cases. So because there are all these other documents and instruments that provide for minimum wages. Uh, the first uh, and most obvious and topical at the moment is modern awards. So you'll have a hospitality award that sets... Um, minimum wages for the hospitality industry. Those there, I think there are about 130 of them at the moment, and those uh, awards regulate minimum wages and other things like penalties on an industry basis. Uh, Is I, that are they often less than the? No, they must be over. over they must be more than, than seventeen seven. Equal to or more than. Okay. And then there's other documents instruments called enterprise agreements. Enterprise agreements apply to companies and they they are negotiated by companies and and the trade union and the employees. And when an enterprise agreement's in place, um, the modern award won't apply, neither will the national minimum wage order. It overrides. Overrides. And uh, a lot of companies, bigger companies, medium to large companies will have enterprise agreements in place. And then you've got your contract of employment, which will also provide a, a wage and the gravamen of that is that the contract, modern awards and enterprise agreements must be above the or or equal to the, the national minimum wage. Mm. <laughs> so you can get below the minimum wage if you have an enterprise agreement. No. No. Oh you still oh right. So yeah, that's the absolute rock bottom. That's the rock bottom. Yeah. Right. Because you know the reason that we wanted to do this is you know, I'm of the age where all of my friends 
kids and my own child is in the, they're all in the uh, age range of 15 to 25 all the kids and just one after the other for the last three years every conversation they're being paid below the minimum wage and these are all you know kids that are you know know the rules their families know the rules and consistently i say but how can that why are you being paid 15 dollars an hour how can they get away with and that they mm-hmm. constantly say oh that's all they're offering there's nothing i can do no point complaining is there a point complaining there is a, a an informal economy for for uh, for employees and wages. Is there a point complaining? It's up. It's the law is pretty clear. Um, if you if you pay below seventeen seventy, it's a breach of the act, and it entails um, a penalty under the act. Um, and uh, it's pretty uh, straightforward. So what do they? What do people? It happens all the time. So why is it? Because those who are being paid badly don't have the wherewithal to actually challenge and and seek legal recompense. That's probably part of it. Um, the when I think about the employees of that age bracket, in you know most commonly they're in retail or hospitality. They look. They're always looking for the other job anyway. They're always on the move. Um, they're always. They're not going to be fussed with commencing litigation as a seventeen-year-old and going to the time and expense to do that to recuperate. You know the extra few dollars per also, hour they weren't paid. But also, tons of it is cash in hand, and so they're getting the benefit of not paying cash. It's mostly Tax. you know it's working in cafes and small shops in uh, all over the place, and it's all they're all being paid cash, and uh, and so they're not on the books. A lot of them are getting you know things like I don't know I'll study whatever it's called these days, various awards. I'll study student allowances, and of course they don't want to declare the money because the moment they earn a cent, their um, allowances get cut from mm. Centrelink anyway, and. Yeah. So there's yeah. this massive cash economy still going on despite GST and all the What did you call it, the informal economy? I'm going to use that <laughs> the informal, now. yeah, economy, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But the other thing about um, youth employment is there's uh, different rules for youth wages as well. So, what's, it, what's a youth? Under what? Uh, under 21. Um, so I think from 16 to 21, uh, employees get percentages of the minimum wage. So if they're 16, they might get 55% of the minimum wage. If they're 17, that yep. goes to 65, et cetera. Um, and again, though, it does depend on the industry. So in the hospitality industry, it doesn't cap out at 21. It caps out at 20. And um, there's a really interesting public policy debate about, well, why are we paying our 21-year-olds a lesser wage than our 22-year-olds, et cetera? And, and that's, a, that's a debate that's going on at the moment. Um, and was that sort of debate was responsible for the hospitality ward in particular having a you know cutting off at twenty rather than twenty one. So, so I mean, like you said, there are interesting policy debates about you know should it be twenty, should it be twenty one? You know, you said that it's seventeen dollars seventy, I think, an hour. I mean, that that's a pretty specific figure. Mm. Um, who's deciding these things? The Fair Work Commission decides it every year, uh, and it comes into effect on the 1st of July every year after they have a big adversarial hearing and contest about what percentage should the minimum wage be increased or decreased, um, which is quite unique to our system. And so the industries, oh, sorry, Lindy. No, go on. The industries are obviously um, arguing their case. Like I could imagine if I was in the hospitality industry, I'd say, ah, there shouldn't be penalty rates. And nearly all of my work is on the weekend and in the evening. I can't be paying that. Um, you know, my I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have to, go through all these policies and processes. So is that what happens? All these groups get together and yes. nut it out? So the, at the outcome of the annual wage review, the national minimum wage is set 
and then the, all the modern awards are marked up as a consequence to the percentage that uh, the Commission decides to award. And oh, you know, I've got a question without notice. I should have warned you on this mm. one. Surely then, other countries... Do we differ from all the other countries? Like, I've just got it in my head that the US minimum wage is like like 10 bucks an hour. It's next to, you know, it's really low. Is that true? Is it, do all the countries differ? Um, it's a question without notice. Uh, it, it, the Australian system of setting terms, conditions for employees is unique to Australia. It's something that um, we decided to do with our constitution, and it's been in place ever since. Um, for uh, At 1904, there was a, the Conciliation and Arbitration Court that decided these things. Uh, it was completely unique. Didn't come from America, didn't come from Britain. Um, and it's we call it the independent umpire. It's It's been there ever since. It is unique. So are we doing well then? Are we doing okay at 1770? Sort of roughly, you know, there plus or minus think, a couple of I months. think you'd say yes, unless you're getting paid that amount of money. <laughs> yeah, good point. I, I, th- yeah, I actually true. think you would. I think mm. that seems fine in comparison to what's going on in the rest of the world, but unless you're getting paid that amount of money. Do we know what proportion of people get paid that amount of money? Any guesses? Do we know? I, I, I've no, looked it up. So it'd have to be people who aren't covered by an award, aren't covered by an enterprise agreement. No, they are, though. If they're getting the 1770, I mean. Well, what no, because no, that's, that's over. This is how complicated it, it is. is. I mean, you know. Like, I'm going to ask some sensible questions here. My, well, courtesy of Michael, who's texted. At what age does the minimum wage apply? Because apprenticeships pay much less than that. That's a Michael. Yeah, so there's, ex- there's other exclusions to the minimum wage. One is apprentice um, wages, so... The awards will um, provide a proportion, a percentage like youth wages to apprentice wages. Um, the other uh, key exclusion is um, to employees with uh, disabilities. And the awards um, set up a system whereby um, em- employees with an intellectual disability will get assessed uh, and, and based on their productivity and then they'll be paid a certain percentage of the minimum wage. Oh, man, that's crazy. That's fraud. That's <laughs> it, it's I complex. I would imagine, though, it's set up. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to think, why would you do that? I would imagine it's set up to ensure that people with disabilities can get access to the workforce because yes, if people... but not be taken advantage of, hopefully. Absolutely. That's why I'm sure you'd have all these you know, regulations and rules around it to try and get that balance so that if they're performing at a lower level, you want them to have access to the workforce. If you're told that they have to pay seventeen seventy and... And that opportunity that, might that arise. That would be excluded Precisely, from the workforce. Yeah. I assume that's what and it's that's, about. And that's the same policy argument rises to youth wages. So, right. um, in order want, to get people in. In order to get 16-year-olds in. Um, the thing is, though, hasn't that argument also been used in the past for reasons that we would now find absolutely abhorrent? For example, I mean, this independent umpire, haven't they said the same thing before about women? Yes, uh, and Indigenous wages. So, well, there was, the two things that come to mind is... Um, Indigenous stockmen in, you know, the middle part of last century um, were being paid a particular wage that wasn't the minimum wage. The commission at that point decided that they should be. Um, uh, then I think after that there was a, a huge case about equal pay. I, from history, uh, from my recollection of history, I think what happened was the commission decided that yes, there should be equal pay, but there's a difference between women-based work and men-based work. Um, there was this weird lo- illogical distinction drawn and uh, that was rectified a few years after in a subsequent decision. So um, in the context of the recent decision by the Fair Work Commission, it's not the first time that the Commission's made adverse decisions to um, employees in that way. Well, talking about that most recent mm. decision, because for- fortunately the, the other, as you said, has, has at least been rectified. W- with regard to penalty rates, 
A, were you surprised at that? At what was handed down? Um, no. Uh, the the commission uh, decision was a product of two years of work. It's a huge undertaking. Um, it was, I think, 139 witnesses, 39 days of hearing, 5,000 or 6,000 submissions. They heard from employers, employees, trade unions, governments, churches, not-for-profit groups. Everyone had a say, um, and they applied the statutory criteria, and they decided that um, the Sunday penalty rate uh, no longer met the objective that the award should be providing for in those industries, so hospitality, retail and pharmacy. The reason for that was twofold. Um, Firstly, if there was a lower penalty rate, you they they found that um, there would be increased working hours on Sundays. Um, that sounds strange to us city slickers, but it might not, when you think about the, the context of the, the broader Australian economy, it might be that the, the Bendigo Cafe might open up on a Sunday as a consequence of this decision. Um, they, they took, obviously, they had everything before them, all the economic data, um, all the, the the, the policy arguments, etc., and they came to that decision um, after a two-year exercise. So I'm not surprised. I respect the decision. I think it's a huge process. I think it's a very interesting process. Um, I don't think any other piece of legislation or, or instrument um, is scrutinised to that extent. Um, it's a 2,000, I think a 2,100-paragraph decision. It's a huge piece of work. That's, how, that's my average tweet. Of course it is. <laughs> What are the chances, though, of that being overturned? This is the interesting in the future thing for me: is that we've had this independent umpire for a hundred years, um, who have been making these decisions, and um, now uh, we have um, uh, certain politicians wanting to override the decision, and uh, from from the labour side of politics, yes. and it's usually the labour side of politics that um, will uh, are always defending the independent umpire. Um, it's usually the conservative side of politics that would say that we don't need an independent umpire, let the market decide. So it's very interesting um, world we're in at the moment. Um, uh, well, many of the people who the Labor Party represents and the trade union mm. movement represent are the ones who are going to fall foul of this particular decision financially. Yes, so yeah. so oh, I'm not surprised. Of course they are, yeah. are, are going to try and fight that of course. as much as they can. Um, but I think what you're saying is that, yes, there have been disputes about the um, accuracy or fairness of decisions in the past, but usually those criticisms have come from the other, have side. Come from the other side. So in that sense, it's unprecedented. Yes, it is unusual. It's unusual. Um, but I wonder if we do change and override the decision, what stops future governments from uh, changing the independent yeah. decision in the future? So interesting. Um, and we'll see what happens, I guess. We've had a few calls on this, and, and sadly I don't have a chance to, to get to them, and they're representing all sides of politics mm. on this. And I was trying to kind of make this not be a political debate, uh, but just to sort of dig into the legalities associated yep. with it. There's a couple of quick texts to wrap things up. Um, my son is a 26-year-old first-year apprentice baker, and he gets a lousy $15 something per hour. How is that allowed to happen? Is that because of the apprenticeship part? There is a... a, an, a, a Depending on the industry, some some most industries have a an adult training wage, so that might be the case. Do you have to uh, uh, let the person know who was taking up that apprenticeship that that will be their salary right from the start? I mean, has, surely that has to be very clear. Yes, yes. 
and another that says, how do internships fit into this? Very interesting question um, uh, because in, interns are not supposed to be employees. They're, they're, they're paid uh, – well, they come to work to learn something and they're not traditionally uh, – well, they're not supposed to be classified as employees, but the distinction between what an employee is and, in, and an intern is – um, a fine line as well. Yeah, there's a lot of loopholes here. Uh, <laughs> Louise funny says, how does the minimum wage apply to those working on a yearly salary, especially when one a clause in one's contract states that you may be required to work a reasonable amount of hours over 38 hours per week? What could be determined as being reasonable? That's a, a, something in the Fair Work Act. So um, we're all required under the Fair Work Act to work, if we're full-time, 38 hours plus reasonable additional hours. Reasonable additional hours um, are... Um, what the uh, what the parties think are reasonable, um, and depending on and lawyers love saying this, but it depends on the circumstances. Oh. Um, I'm sorry, but yeah. it's true. Um, and uh, but it's a real question for us all. And there's there is also a discussion about a four day working week. About well, you know, we're not we're no longer working the eight hour day. A lot of us, um, so uh, reasonable additional hours um, vary. Um, Particularly when, and, and you'd have, you know, the employer would have one idea of what reasonable working hours were, extra working hours, and the employee would have another idea of what that <laughs> I think is. that's right, yeah. So the conversation um, may never come to a, to a comfortable conclusion. This is a fascinating area, Lee. Come and see us again. Love to. I think there's so many questions that we haven't actually answered tonight and people could uh, could ring up and, and those that we didn't get to on the phone, we could actually answer some of those for um, for them. So thanks for coming in. Lovely to meet you. Barrister Lee Howard, our special guest tonight on Ritz and Cures, together with Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller. Nice to see you, Katie. Lovely to see you. Uh, Steve Allen, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, in. Lindy. 